Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks if it really is all over for the Tories and whether Labour are on track to win and what needs to happen to change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. Today we take on the NHS. Our health service is on its knees. NHS staff continue to strike while a record 7.4 million of us await treatment and the pressure is set to increase as our population grows and ages. That is, unless we can find solutions. Later on, we'll be joined by the Shadow Minister for Social Care, Liz Kendall, and the co-author of a rather good new report from the Institute for Government. That's Rachel Wolf. It's also co-authored by our very own Sam Friedman. We'll also be hearing from the former chairman of an NHS trust and now health commentator, Roy Lilly. So, um, Aisha, I mean, you were already quite famous, but you've become more famous this week because you've been on two viral clips. You were on Question Time last week and then you were on Politics Live being rude about Boris Johnson. I'm just really curious, what's it like to be on Question Time? And then what was it like to have like something you say go so viral around Twitter and, uh, and various websites? Well, the thing about Question Time that was interesting is I have been lucky enough to do Question Time quite a few times and it has always been really, really scary. I did it quite a lot during the Brexit years and they were absolutely vicious. I remember doing one in the North East with Rod Little and Jacob Rees-Mogg and um, it was fair to say that I, as the ardent Remainer, was not the most popular person in the room to the point where afterwards, you know, you kind of like think you might chat a bit with the audience. The security people were like, yeah, we better take you backstage. There's a couple of blokes that want to come over and chin you, basically. So I was like, ah! Um, And so normally every time I've done Question Time, I just get an avalanche of absolute victory 
vitriolic abuse <laughs> about how, like, you know, I'm a sort of Ramina, like, Satanist, etc., etc. But what was interesting about this time was that the atmosphere is just completely different. And we were in quite a Tory area. I mean, I know they sort of weak, the audience. But I actually did feel quite sorry for the <laughs> for the very nice but sort of hapless Tory minister. And I have to say, our podcast on housing really helped me <laughs> because I was able to sort of have a bit of a go at him because I was talking about the revolving door of housing mm. ministers and I think Fiona Bruce piped up saying oh he'd been the housing minister and I was like yeah for four weeks and I'm sure he did a very good job on it but it kind of it's not exactly helping yeah. the sort of situation it is a bit weird when a clip like that goes viral it's just quite nice to not be getting abuse for once <laughs> that's just the main I'm sure everyone agreeing yeah. with you I'm sure normal service will be... I, of course, I've had a couple of people going, well, don't trust her because she didn't let Jeremy Corbyn become <laughs> Prime Minister. But there has been quite a lot to talk about on the political front. This week has been fairly busy. There's been... You, know, you were you were very critical of um, Boris in, in uh, one of those clips. He has made a bit of a mess of uh, the past week, hasn't he? He has, and it's so massively on brand for him, this utterly petulant temper tantrum. Oh, for peerages, I mean, what a hill to die on these like ridiculous people and his ridiculous peerage list and I think the jig is up for him I mean who knows if he might try and have a crack at parliament again but I think the spell is broken for a lot of people I mean he will still be a voice right because there are still certain members of the Conservative Party and I had to go at one of those MPs this week but there will be certain journalists that will just keep pumping his ludicrous comeback narrative into the ether. I mean, I think like the Conservative Party will just never be free of it. And even like what has surprised me a bit this week is, is even journalists who are sort of not signed up to the Johnson bandwagon, just repeating all of this arcane nonsense about who argued what about what peerage and, and, and like as if it's really important. And I'm like, no one cares. These people don't matter anymore. There are so many real problems. And we're talking about whether Nadine, like arcane details about whether Nadine Dora should be getting a peerage or not. It's absurd theatre. I don't really understand why people have got so sucked into it. Just ignore it. And I think one of the reasons why people keep wanting us to get sucked into it is because... The more we are like a clown show and the more we are all addicted to the, the drama of all of this nonsense, we're not serious people. And it's just easier to sort of not do the hard work that we're trying to do in these podcasts about crunching through these different... It just kind of shows you how fundamentally and depressingly unserious our politics has become. Mm. People are so addicted to the kind of soap opera and the chaos that we keep okay, just back before we leave the soap opera, yeah. can we just a couple of moments to just pick through a 29-year-old being made a legislator for life. Charlotte Owen, yes. What do you make of that? Well, it's just bizarre. Like, but there's, she, like, People have picked on her because she's the very youngest and has no CV at all, right? No basis. She can be in the Lords if it's not reformed for 50 years. So it's absurd. But she's not the only one. I mean, pretty much everyone on that list had no reason to be there. The Lords has always been used to put in sort of political allies. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, there's always been an element of cronyism in the Lords. You know, some of the pearl clutching is a bit over the top. But people at least used to pretend there was some like achievement behind it. You know, you'd do 50 years before you got put in the Lords. You might be a captain of industry right. or, or you yeah, might run a charity. You know, you, or... there'd, be, there'd be some kind of excuse for putting you in there. But now, like 29-year-olds, 31-year-olds getting put in there, having been like an intern, it's just 
baffling. Well, I, I love that Club 1830 has come to the Lords. It's, <laughs> it's quite. And also, I remember going, I mean, you spend a lot of my time in, in the Lords and you would go in because there's so many elderly people. You would see quite a lot of wheelchairs. Now there will be e scooters lined <laughs> up. With it's going to be a real culture clash, isn't it? Sort of the 29 year olds <laughs> and the 85 year olds trying to figure out how to talk to each other. But anyway, like we shouldn't get dragged into spending the whole episode no. talking about it. We must rise um, above it now. We must rise above the nonsense. In the meantime, while the Tories have been just going through this sort of clown show yet again, Labour have sort of been taking the opportunity to bin quite a lot of policy and throwing away anything that could be used to attack them as being sort of lacking fiscal credibility. We saw a watering down of their £28 billion Green New Deal Slightly overstated, I felt. It wasn't watered down as much as some people were sort of arguing, but they made a big point about saying we're not going to spend all this money straight away. We saw another article in The Guardian yesterday saying something similar about their childcare plans are being watered down. You can see why they're doing it. You can see why they're worried about fiscal credibility. We've talked about that on previous episodes. But are they are they going too far now? It does worry me. I mean... Look, you can spin it, and they are valiantly trying to do that. They're trying to spin it as they are the absolute antithesis of the Liz Truss era. But it is, I think, the narrative is... I mean, a lot of activists I speak to are are really worried about the kind of shift, particularly on childcare, because that was seen as like a really big flagship policy. I mean, one of the areas on which I think people are worried that Labour isn't being ambitious enough and maybe worrying too much about fiscal credibility and not enough about solving problems is is on our subject today, which is the NHS. If you look at the current situation, it's really bleak. And it's a massive voter priority. It's second after cost of living in every kind of top issues poll. We've got the lowest satisfaction ever with the NHS. Seven and a half million people on waiting lists almost now. Half a million people waited more than four hours in A&E last month. People are really feeling this and it comes up in focus groups. Everyone's got an experience or they've had a friend who's had an experience of it. We've got strikes happening this week again, junior doc strikes. Absolutely, we do need reform because the way we're running the, the NHS, particularly hospitals, is very unproductive. You know, we've hired a lot of extra staff. We're spending a lot of money on staff, but then we're not giving them the equipment, the technology. There aren't enough beds. There's nowhere near enough beds in, in the NHS. And that's because of social care. Um, and that's partly because there's lots of people who sort of bed blocking, which is not their fault because there's nowhere else in the system for them to go because social care is sort of completely unreformed and dysfunctional. So you've got that problem. You've got a lot of experienced staff leaving because of morale and pay. You've got real problems with management and lack of clarity from the centre. So there's lots of like things that need to change. It's not just about saying, oh, let's stick in more money. I totally sort of accept the position on that. But like some of these things cost money. It's like, you know, so there is ultimately no way you can deal with the prices as bad as the NHS one is right now without spending anything. And of course, on top of that, it does feel like as a society, we are a sicker society than than we have ever been. We've got a lot of obesity, diabetes, illnesses which are linked to lifestyle and poverty. And it was interesting with Quajo on the show last week saying that actually like housing and health have quite a big collision. You were making the point about, you know, there's lots of stuff that intersects with health. And I think one of the big points is, you know, we talk about spending money on the health service as if it's sort of, you know, just sort of uh, spending that's going nowhere, but it's critical to economic growth. We've got two and a half million people now who are economically inactive under retirement age because they are unwell for health reasons, which is the highest it's ever been. And that is 
one of the big problems holding back our labour market, holding back our economy that other countries don't have. So all of these different problems are linked and it is a false economy to say, well, we can't afford to spend more money on the health service. We need to wait for economic growth when that economic growth depends on the health service. For today's episode, we asked the health analyst and health commentator and former chair of an NHS trust, Roy Lilly, for his thoughts on the party's current plans for our health service. And he did not hold back. Hello, my name is Roy Lilly. I'm a former NHS trust chairman and now I write and broadcast on health and social care. They just kind of merge into one, don't they? They're, they're like the labservative party or something. You know, they become the purple party in the middle I mean, we've got this potty idea that the Labour Party are going to fund uh, some kind of a infusion and workforce by taxing or changing the tax affairs of non-DOMs. Well, guess what? Non-DOMs are pretty smart people. You know what? <laughs> they're not going to wait to be taxed. Thanks very much. I mean, they're all off to the Isle of Man already. So Labour have got a potty policy that where they're going to double the number of doctors and recruit God knows how many nurses. But of course, if you do that... That means the throughput in the NHS will go up, which means you have to put more revenue into the NHS. And guess what? You need more radiographers, more scientists, more pharmacologists. You need more cleaners. You need more everybody. And guess what? You've got to have a conversation with the vice chancellors of the universities because guess what? They've got to double the accommodation, double the number of lecturers, double the number of spaces where people can sit down and be lectured to. They've got to double the number of supervisors. And guess what? When they're training them on the ward, you need supervisors and you need placements in the NHS, and that's all got to be doubled as well. So they don't have a proper plan at all. It's just nonsense. You've got to protect the front line, fund it properly, and make it fun to work there. If you do those three things, you'll stop losing people. Because at the moment, as fast as we bung doctors in one end, they're going to Australia at the other. When I say fun, I don't mean, you know, party time. I mean fulfilling occupation. I mean an uncomplicated set of work. So we make work as easy as we can and no nonsense. The N in fun stands for no nonsense. I mean, there's too much nonsense in the lives of nurses, you know, where the rotors are inflexible. There's no childcare. You can't get a decent meal 24-7. Getting to work is a nightmare. And when they get there, they pay £35 a week for parking. There's a shed load you could do. But Starmer won't do it. The Labour Party should remember what the Labour Party is all about. It's about good, quality, public services. The public aren't daft. They realise they've got to be paid for. And it's time we had a Labour Party and not a sort of imitation blue Conservative Party. I can see what Starmer's doing. He's grabbing the middle ground. He's trying to get those red wall seats back. And he thinks he's got to sound and look like the Tories to do it. We've forgotten what the Labour Party set out to do, and that was to look after working people. Well, that was pretty um, brutal from from Roy. Tell I, us what you really think. Yeah, Roy. I mean, did, did, didn't seem very impressed. Um, I mean, I, I kind of see his point in the you know, Labour's sort of have have the one thing they have gone out on is training more doctors in our own system rather than being so reliant on international doctors being recruited, which there's certainly a logic to it, but Roy is absolutely right. That's a huge infrastructure challenge in terms of how you train them within the NHS because existing doctors have to be used to do the training and that sucks up capacity. So, and it takes time. Yeah, and it takes money and you know we're not going to get into a debate about whether non-DOMs will leave or not, but you know there's certainly a risk that that won't bring in the money they think it will. And I think it just shows sort of how limited at the moment the sort of thinking is on the these issues, given how big the problems are. I think there's a lot of sense in that. I mean, Roy obviously has been 
a chair of an NHS trust, so he's been there, he's in contact with a lot of people on the front line. And I think there is a feeling that we've got to get a bit more detail from Labour on some of this stuff. Joining us today to discuss the future of healthcare is the MP for Leicester West and the Shadow Minister for Health and Social Care, Liz Kendall. Hello, Liz. Hello. And we're also delighted to have Rachel Wolf. Rachel was a co-author of the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, was once a policy advisor to Boris Johnson when he was Mayor of London and is the founder of the policy research group Public First. She's also recently co-written a brand new report for the Institute of Government with our very own Sam Friedman, investigating the NHS's productivity puzzle. Rachel, hello. Hi. Liz, I'll I'll come to you first. What do you think is the scale of the crisis right now for the NHS? Well, I remember, you know, as I was working for Labour back in 1996, how bad uh, waiting times were for treatment then. You know, people were, were dying on waiting lists, waiting for heart operations, people waiting 18 months or longer. A and E was in a permanent winter crisis. And We've gone back to there. Um, it is impossible to get to see your GP. I myself have actually changed a GP three times in the last six months just in order to try and get an appointment. I've got my um, my family in their little village in Sussex talking about you know what's going to happen if one of their neighbours needs an ambulance who'll come round and help get them into the car because they don't you know someone will drive them there. It's a real worry, but. The big picture problem to me is this. When the NHS was created, life expectancy was 63. Now it's 80. And one in four babies born today are set to live to a 100. The NHS was set up at a time when the main cause of death and disease was infectious diseases and accidents. Now it's long-term chronic conditions. Often people have two, three or more. Social care was left out of the initial funding settlement too. So we have a healthcare system that is is not currently based around the needs of today and the future. And I think the really big problem is to fundamentally shift the model of care out of hospitals into the community towards prevention, much more joined up with social care and focused on the diseases of today and tomorrow, not of the past. And that is the challenge facing this government and an incoming Labour government. Rachel, your reflections on what Liz has just said and and your um, assessment of the scale of the crisis. Yeah, I mean, the reason that Sam and I decided to do this report is because my a lot of my day job is is doing focus groups and polling with people around the country. You know, what, what are they worried about? And And all the polls will tell you that they're very worried about the NHS and they are. But the range and depth of concern that you get is really quite something. So it's everything from, you know, I'm terrified that my grandmother is going to be lying on the street for hours waiting for an ambulance through to, you know, my teenager has had a really serious problem, anything from mental health to, you know, a bad skin problem. And it's been years and I can't afford it. I can't afford anything, but I'm really worried that I'm going to have to go private or they'll never get seen. So, but the reason this is interesting, because Liz mentioned 97 or pre-97, is that a lot of people, when you talk to them, will say, well, where is that 350 million a week we were promised? Why have we cut funding to the NHS? And actually, we haven't. A lot of money has gone into the NHS in the last few years, over and above COVID, and yet everything feels much worse. 
And part of that is because of the pressures that Liz was talking about. We have an aging population. We're still struggling from the aftermath of COVID. But I think my conclusion from doing this paper, and I think Sam's as well, it's great doing a podcast with someone who's bound to agree with what you're saying here. Let's see, let's see if that continues. Is that there are actually things that we can do within the NHS aside from investing in it to make it work more productively. And we need to be rethinking about how we spend money in the NHS and how we incentivize it and how we manage it. Because otherwise, the kind of bedrock of security for people in this country, which is the belief that if something goes wrong, there's a healthcare system that will pick up the pieces, disappears. And I think that is a a massive crisis. Can can I ask you about the politics of it? Like, Rishi Sunak said it was one of his five priorities to bring down waiting lists, but they seem weirdly relaxed about the situation. Like they're letting the doctor strike go on. They're sort of not making a lot of announcements about the NHS or sort of particularly pushing any policies on it. Have they just sort of given up on the issue and they know they just don't want to focus on this for the election. They're going to try and just keep it as low key as possible and focus elsewhere. I mean, how much of a risk is that? So I'm a, I'm a bit puzzled about this. I mean, there is a kind of basic view which is probably true, the the Conservatives are on stronger ground when they're talking about the economy and they're on weaker ground when they're talking about the health service in particular. But I think the reason that originally this was one of the five pledges was because they knew that they wouldn't be able to avoid talking about the NHS <laughs> if waiting lists didn't come down. So I am puzzled why they haven't been just faster Mm. in trying to grip this. I think part of it is they are so terrified and really believe their their sort of rhetoric on inflation that they're Mm. not willing to do anything that they think makes that worse. I think partly maybe because they've been in charge for a long time, maybe because everyone is exhausted post-COVID, they can't see a way forward. But I find it very, very puzzling. I suppose I'm, I'm the non-Labour person in this room, like at least I feel like there is potential if a Labour government comes in to actually put some reforms in place because they'll be vaguely more trusted. But do you think it's also because they don't know what to do? They've never had a strong case on reform. I mean, if I look back at what happened since I was elected, 2010, there was the absolutely bonkers Lansley reforms that nobody could explain. It was all a structural backroom reorganisation. Oh my of, God. Of I mean, I read and... for us on both of the bill committees, each one eight weeks long. I mean, it was humongous. Nobody knew or could explain. The what Prime it Minister was for. Could, didn't know didn't, what it was for. Exactly. Couldn't explain it. And they didn't, it didn't achieve what they said. Then, Hunt came in and his theory was about openness, transparency, but that alone isn't a big theory of reform. They have failed on the social care aspect. And to be honest, you you can't sort the problems of the NHS if you haven't sorted the problems of social care. And Hunt was the health secretary who said that his biggest regret as health secretary was not putting in place the long-term reforms to social care. So it was with great irony that he buried them once and for all when he became chancellor. And then when they do something, which, for example, their £750 million they've spent over the winter to deal with delayed discharges... The sum total fewer people in hospital as a result of that was 472. I don't think they have a a vision or a theory of reform. And I think that's the problem. Because I'm I'm quite sympathetic to a lot of that. But just before I come back, what, what would be the Labour theory of reform right now? So 
we need to make sure everything is aligned to push care as much as possible into the community and at home and towards prevention. And from my experience in government, there's no single bullet on reform. I think it is a combination of fewer, clearer targets. I think we need to give users more say and control. And you need a regulatory system, which is actually about making this happen so that the whole system together is focused on what you want to achieve. Because I've seen a lot of either top-down targets, sharing best practice or technology and all of that. And in my experience, it's only when you get all of those things aligned together that you really make change work. I was going to say, it's kind of what happens at the end of a government's life on on any range of topics, is that various different Secretary of States have come in and tried to do different things, and they all sort of concatenate into a very confusing mix. We've had, as you say, Lansley reforms, the Hunt tried to do something a bit different, Steve Barclay is going back a bit to where we were pre-2010 to some degree. In a way, having a a new government just allows you to start from a clean sheet of paper, at least, if nothing else. Well, I think what's interesting, I don't know if you characterise it this way, but if you leave aside the prevention, most of what you outlined seems to me very similar to the basic Blairite model of managing hospital performance. And it seems to me part of what happened is that Lansley was seen as such a political disaster in attempting at least originally to accelerate those reforms that everyone got quite frightened and has actually dialed those back. And I'd contrast that with education, where I think there was much more of a through line of changing some parts of, but also enhancing and accelerating what had happened under the Blair era. And it's much easier to see that through line in education than it is in health. It's a much more complicated system, though, isn't it, in health? And, um, you know, I was working in the department on health in the mid-2000s on something called Our Health, Our Care, Our Say, which was when Patricia Hewitt was health secretary, which started making this argument about shifting the focus out of hospitals into the community towards prevention, and that with lifestyle conditions, which are the underlying cause of so many of the long-term health problems that we face, that is the agenda that I think we really need to flesh out because unless we get the system fundamentally shifted, we're going to remain obsessed with hospitals. And I want to be obsessed yeah. with caring the community in our home. Now, we had a chat with Roy Lilly, Liz, before you came into the studio. He is a health commentator, mm-hmm. former chair of an NHS trust. And he was quite critical of some of Labour's plans. I mean, he He wasn't critical about the aspiration. It was about the doing of it. So, you know, he was saying, look, you've got a plan to to double the number of doctors and recruit nurses. But that means the throughput of the NHS will go up. You're also going to have to have more infrastructure around to sort of support those people coming in. He also was quite sceptical about how all of this was going to be funded. I mean, his view was just saying you're going to close the non-DOM tax loophole. Well, most non-DOMs will just go off somewhere else. What, what, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, Roy has been thinking and writing about health issues for many years. And as anyone who receives his letter every day, he's always got some good insight. I believe we will get that funding from ending the non-DOM tax status. I know that people want to see much more from Labour on all of these issues. 
I think we are right to say we will only make commitments where we can show how we will spend for them. I think you do need a 10-year plan of investment and reform. And I think in today's world, that has to cover health and social care. I would also say when you're um, spending £1.7 billion on keeping people in hospital when they don't need to be there, imagine the difference that money would make if you could start to release it and have more services in the community at home. I think that can be done. The big difference from 97, though, is, of course, you, you, you inherited then a growing economy. And so whilst initially your pledges were small, you were able to expand that out pretty quickly. And then by the early 2000s, spending was going up by 10% a year, you know, biggest increases we've ever seen in, in, health, in health spending. And I think now there's a sort of worry that, OK, so you're being cautious now, you get in, at some point, there might be a call you have to take. The economy isn't growing as fast as it was then. You've got this crisis on the NHS. You're going to have to make a call between the two rather than kind of have the luck that was there in 97 to 2005 when, when you were able to kind of do both. I mean, Wes Streeting, our Shadow Health Secretary, I think is right to say if and when we get into government, there's not going to be a lot of money and reform is going to have to do more of the heavy lifting. Liz, look, this is really tricky, right? The economy is in a really difficult position. Everybody is very clear-eyed about the fact that if Labour wins, it's not going to have loads of, of cash to, to splash around. But Labour has also got a lot of hope riding on it because of the NHS. You know, Labour Party is very much seen as the party of the, the NHS. It's in the kind of DNA of the Labour Party. So on the one hand, you're sending out quite a tough message on a fiscal restraint and West Streeting already has, you know, had a bit of a stushy with some of the uh, medical unions, the BME, for is that example. A Scottish term it is. It's like a row. I didn't know what it meant earlier it's like, in the okay, for, for our non-Scottish listeners, a stushy is a wee fight. It's like a wee skirmish, basically. So <laughs> Labour's going to have this situation where you come in, you will want to do some reform. There's also the question of public sector pay, which is a, like a really big running issue. You've got the unions that will be pushing very hard on, on this. How are you going to sort of balance all of these competing things? Um, I suppose my starting point is I see uh, the state of our pub public services and our economy as inextricably linked. It's not just that decent public services require a growing economy. It's that a growing economy requires decent public services. There's been a huge debate about the rise in economic inactivity for the over 50s since the COVID pandemic. And that unless we get those people working, it's not good for them and their incomes in a cost of living crisis. It's not good for businesses who need the skills of everybody in the country and it's not good for the economy as a whole. The primary reason for that rise in economic inactivity for the over 50s is poor physical and mental health and the huge waiting lists, over 7.4 million now. And the second reason, Aisha, is caring responsibilities. People are having to can't go to work because they can So what I believe is we're sort of thinking about this in the wrong way, that this is all about a drain on the economy rather than part of a strategy. For growth. So, we'll, so does that mean you will, you guys will be saying, look, if we need to put some more money, because I mean, I think we all agree, and Sam and I had very much had a conversation 
in our intro about how health has got to be part of critical infrastructure. You can't have growth without good health. That's absolutely right. But what does that mean for some of the nuts and bolts money issues, particularly for things like the public sector pay drama that we've been seeing sort of play out? Because that's something that you may well inherit. Absolutely. And I understand why people ask us about that. We're not going to pluck a number out of nowhere. I mean, God knows what the state of the economy is going to be next month, uh, let alone at the time of a general election. But I simply do not understand why they haven't genuinely got around the table and sorted it out. I mean, they are going to have to. I mean, the number one thing Sunak could do is just is sort this to prevent problems getting worse. Because they're worried about where the money's going to come from, right? You're looking quizzical, Rachel. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it's perfectly reasonable for the Labour Party not to want to be pushed too hard on this and to say, you just need to get round the table and sort it out. But at some point before a, an election, I think you will have to say, no, this is what I would do and then immediately afterwards you will be the health secretary or the health minister and the chancellor secretary and you will have to decide how much money to put into pay where that money is going to come from is it going to come from more tax rises is it going to come from reducing public expenditure outside the health system or is it going to come from reducing public expenditure within the health system I, you know i or will you borrow or will you borrow more and and risk some of the things that have happened with lots of borrowing recently i mean that that is they're the hard choices that lie ahead. Now, we're not expecting neither, you to give away the, uh, you know, the, the manifesto um, stuff now. The but unions haven't put a figure on it. The government, initially at least, refused to put a figure on it. So it, it does make me smile that everyone expects Labour <laughs> to put a figure on it right now when God knows what the state is going to be. So you'll forgive me if I don't. My point is this, that this could have been solved a long while ago and the government has, I think, by its attitude to this, made a difficult issue far worse. Can I ask about social care? Because you're, you're Shadow Minister for Social Care. What, what's your sort of current thinking on the priorities for social care? The big thing I think we have to do is have a, a new principle of what I would call home first, which is most of us want to stay living in our own homes for as long as possible. We need the staff to be able to do that. Technology can play a massive role in people keeping people healthy at home. We need, I think, more choices of housing between care at home and a care home. Other countries have lots of different types of supported living or in some places they're called retirement communities, different options. That, I think, is huge because, I mean, we will always need care homes and nursing homes, especially as we are living for longer and what we're seeing in terms of dementia. But the big thing we have to do is focus on that care at home. The two other things just to briefly say is I want to make a big focus of of labour on unpaid family carers. More and more of us are going to be caring, caring for elderly parents and often children at the same time too and we've got two and a half million unpaid carers have had to quit work in order to look after their loved ones now it was labor women in the 80s 70s 80s and 90s who championed childcare for women's equality the world of work we have to do the same on social care too because one in five women aged 55 to 60 one in five are now caring 
for an elderly or disabled relative. Family life has changed beyond recognition and politics has been too slow to keep up to that. So I think paid care workforce, unpaid carers with this big shift to home first, those are my priorities for social care. How much does it bother you or how much of a problem do you think it is that so much of the market as it is at the moment is dependent on sort of for profit, private equity-backed companies. It feels quite unstable and quite risky. I am concerned about that. We have already seen the collapse of companies due to complete confusion in in their structure. You know, I think there are many private providers who are doing a good job, but I think we do... There have been people who have been providing unacceptable standards of care whilst giving themselves huge bonuses, and that is not on. And Liz, this week the Fabian Society came up with their plan for a national care service, which was very popular with, with, with many progressives. Is that something that Labour would consider? I mean, that's something that had been talked about before. Yeah, I mean, for me, I do not want to see a sort of nationally run it by by the man, or you know, it usually is a, a man in, a man, in Whitehall. For me, you're, not, you're never going to get social care right unless it's absolutely locally led and locally accountable. So, you know, that's not our policy. The Fabian report, there's lots of interesting things in that and it's an important contribution to a debate. But what I do think overall is we have to put social care finally on an equal footing with the NHS. If you were creating the NHS now, you would never have it would never have been left out. But we are not going to get there overnight. So a roadmap, you know, a ten year plan, as I've said before, I think it's really this important. This is sounding a lot like what we said in twenty nineteen. <laughs> yeah. We have a long term plan, trust <laughs> us. We'll get there one day without yeah. making you sell your home. Yeah. Um yeah. I <laughs> really wanted to get your view on this as well because of course, you know, the Conservative Party have had a really tangled history with the whole thing on social care, the the, the twenty seventeen general election campaign, and Boris Johnson did have some proposals o- o- on the table. I mean, what wh- what's your thinking on this? I mean the I mean the twenty seventeen uh, sort of announcement, partly because of how it came, w- did have this kind of hangover effect on policy for a very long long time. But I think more than that, the challenge on social care again is someone has to pay for it. The most obvious way of someone paying for it is to use the value of your home in some way. This is electorally incredibly difficult when a very high percentage of the electorate is retired and a very high percentage of the electorate is retired in swing seats. I just think you have to acknowledge that brutal fact because why did on social care they go for national insurance contributions when you already have a working age population that is relatively highly taxed because you're terrified of putting anything onto older people. Why do you still have a triple lock? Because you are terrified of putting anything onto older people. And it's exactly the same problem with social care. I guess one of the things that is quite potentially interesting in the future is that sort of Labour's electorate have fewer multi-million pound houses in the south of England than the Conservative Party electorate. So you might see a bit more ambition there. But I think the reason that everyone is always very caught, they always say they want to sort social care, always say they want to put it on equal footing, always say that it matters, but don't say much more than that is because they don't want to say how they're going to pay for it. That is the question. And another question we often have is, can there not be some coming together from all the political parties on social care? Dill not. Liz, is there any chance well, of that? I am um, actually, when I was uh, in the, when Theresa May was Prime Minister, 
I went with Sarah Wollaston, who was then a Conservative MP, and oh, Norman yes. Lamb, and said to Theresa May, you're in a terrible state. You've done your dementia tax. You've got completely obliterated. We will come together. If you set up something a bit like, you know, the Banking Commission was set up post the financial crisis and sort this out. And uh, she and especially Jeremy Hunt said they weren't interested. We, did we want to come together and sort out the mess of the Lansley reforms? And at that point I said, <laughs> you created that. You sort it out. I'm, uh, I'm wasted <laughs> enough of my life on, on that dreadful piece of legislation. So I've always said that that's what I wanted to do. I was actually involved in the first cross-party talks on the Dilnot cap. And, and if you become so, social care cabinet secretary would you I'm would not you, about to uh, announce on your fabulous cross you <laughs> party working uh, maybe but you know anybody who knows me or knows that I'm always prepared to to work together with others and have have discussions we've got no proposal for cross party talks at, at the minute but I do think you need long term you need to find some way of having sustainability over this. I mean, we got obliterated in 2010 with the death tax. Then there was the dementia tax. It has been... I, I don't think you can take the politics out of it because politics is about choices, who pays, how much, yeah. for what, who benefits. I would just say my, my track record has always been that I am open discussion. I'd also say one of the things I think Liz said that's really interesting and I'm surprised that the Conservatives haven't gone on this more is how do you make this more flexible? How do you make it easier for families to look after themselves, to look after elderly relatives? How do you create a system where it isn't sort of state or nothing? Mm. I think there's quite a lot that you can do there to, to make the care experience better for people on all sides. And more bespoke. And more bespoke and more reflective of what people generally want. I mean, I'd argue that's true for early years too. Sam would disagree, but I think it is it is definitely true for elderly care. Yeah, we do disagree on some stuff. Just a lot of stuff. A lot of yeah. stuff. Um, we finish every episode by asking our guests uh, whether Labour is passing the power test on the issue we've been discussing that week. I'm guessing, Liz, you probably do <laughs> think Labour are passing the power test. Well, I, if I remember, God, am I going to actually say this? Um, yes, you Tony are. Tony Blair before he became Prime Minister and then Gordon Brown, even though it was within government. Your health reform is, is difficult and they got much more of an idea about what they wanted to do the longer they were in government. Because of the work that we've done, particularly around the health mission, I think Keir has been really engaged in this, not just because he knows it's important to the country, he's got family experience of the health and care sector and we've had a lot more discussions about health reform recently than I have on, on previous occasions. So, yes, I do. I do think that we're mo more focused on it, not least because we know there isn't, it isn't going to be something that, you know, you're just going to be able to throw money at. Rachel? Is the power test whether they'll do it well? The power test, there's a two, you can take it in two parts. Are they in a position I to win the election? I define the test if I read Yeah, I was the test. Are they in a position to win the election on yes. this issue, which I think is a yes on this topic because they're so far, always so far ahead on the NHS. But are they ready in terms of ability to, with a plan to govern and, to, and to, to solve some of these problems? I think they are starting to say interesting things. I think they would need to say more interesting things between now and the election, but I'm sure they plan to. Sam, what were your takeaways? 
So I thought Liz was really, really interesting. I, could, I, could, I sort of could feel the frustration coming through her voice through a lot of the conversation that, you know, the Tories have put us in this sort of dismal position where the economy is tanking and there's no money and the health service is a mess. And you're asking us to, like, tell you now without any of the sort of tools and powers of government exactly what we're going to do and how much money we're going to spend and so on to solve it. But you can see the bind that they've got, this sort of that they want to offer hope. They want to say we're going to, you know, transform social care. We're going to you know, transform the hospitals. But they can't commit to, to, to the money because they can't commit to the tax rises because people are feeling very, very stretched and poor at the moment. So you can see why they're in such a bind at the moment. So I think Labour absolutely passes the first bit of the power test in that anything must be better than this. You know, as you yes. were saying in the intro, it's like the number two issue for people. I think people just feel like literally anyone would be better on health And they right are now. miles ahead on the, you know, polling on health. They're sort of 30, 40 points ahead, you know. The Tories have no support on this issue. So I think they can comfortably and securely bank that. And, and Labour, of course, is, you know, it's seen as being the party of the health service. I think the next bit is really, really difficult. And I think it's difficult on two levels. There's the cold, hard cash question, which Rachel did identify. How do you pay for this? Who pays for it? The money has got to come from somewhere and some money will have to be spent. And the pay stuff, the public sector pay stuff, I think is going to be really tricky for Labour as well, particularly because of the association with with the trade unions and the fact that, you know, Labour wants to be on on the side of, of, of working people. But I think there's another really big issue for Labour on this, which is going to be the hope thing. Labour's got to find some sort of feel-good stardust when they come in and health is the obvious place where they want to sprinkle that. If the reality is that things are probably going to get worse before they get better, that is all I think psychologically and politically going to be quite tough for Labour. But it, I mean, it is doable. I think we forget because now it's seen as sort of a bit of a golden age for the health service. But, he, but during the Blair reforms, they were heavily criticised by the unions, by the health unions. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from the left on what Blair did, even with a lot of money. Now it seems sort of like a, a golden era, but, but they were able to do it. They were nevertheless able to push through those reforms. So it, it is doable, but you cannot do it without without any resourcing. And, and that's, um, that is the critical uh, issue. That's the critical if issue. If they are prepared to find some resources, some money to sort of say, even if it's small scale at first, you, you know, we're going to focus on social care first and we're going to put... But even that, you'd need four, five, six billion straight off the bat to sort of make it make any inroads in, in even that one part of the health sector, which is sort of equivalent to about a penny of it on income tax. But, you know, if you were prepared to do that, then I think they could have a bit of a fight on the reform side and win it, as Blair did. But you've got to be prepared to find some resources there. And she knows reform and, and, and investment come hand in hand. They just can't say where it's going to come from at the moment. I mean, I think one of the themes that's really coming out of this whole series for me is that is. Politically, after the election, it's going to take Labour a long time to get close to sorting a lot of this stuff out for, for all the reasons we've talked about. A big, big question is how much time the public will give them. Actually, if you look at the 2010 to 2015, people did give the Conservatives quite a lot of time. They, they sort of voted for them again in 2015. They were sort of saying, you know, we blame Labour for the financial crisis, fairly or not, and we will give the, the Tories a fair wind. I don't know if trust in politics has deteriorated to the point where Labour will get the benefit of the doubt. Will they get five years, uh, even 10 years, where people say, OK, we know you inherited a mess and we know this is a big job. 
Let us know what you thought about that episode. We always love to hear from you. So do get in touch with your comments and your questions. Tweet at The Power Test or at either of us directly or email pod at thepowertest.co.uk. Become a founding member by subscribing to our Substack, which gets you access to ad-free episodes before anyone else. Next time, we'll be getting tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. We'll see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.